Eric Davis is just one of those incredible minds that has tilted its genius towards topics that most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about. The occult, the mysticism, psychedelica as it extends backwards into time. I've been really looking forward to this conversation ever since Jason Silva started mentioning his name and I started reading his writing. His book, High Weirdness, is, well, as it says, it's weird, it's wild, it's beautiful, and so is this podcast. Can't wait to share it with y'all. This week's podcast is brought to you by The Cold Plunge, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp by Lucy, lucy.co promo code amp and on it, onit.com slash Aubrey. Eric Davis has a really unique perspective on where we are now in human history because he's studied human history. He understands the psychedelic revolution of the 60s and he understands how our psychedelic revolution now is different, but perhaps in some ways the same. So of course there are the caveats, there are the dangers, there are the things to look out for from someone who really understands what to look out for, but also the hope, but also the vision for what this might be. So this conversation covers both elements, where we could go and steer into some difficult and challenging waters and where we might come out the other side different than we ever have been as a culture and as a society. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have The Cold Plunge. For those of you who haven't done the cold plunge work, I just can't encourage anything more. It's something that's going to give you a state shift. It's something that's going to provide that stress, which is going to help you create that adaptation. And the adaptations that it creates are absolutely phenomenal. So I feel more clear-headed, more at peace, more comfortable right now in this moment than I did all day. And if I didn't do that cold plunge, I wouldn't be near where I'm at right now. And there is no better cold plunge that I've seen than the one provided by the cold plunge. It's sexy. It looks like a modern bathtub. It's got ozone and UV filtration. It has a steady circulation and you can keep it locked in at that cold temperature. It's literally everything you need and it's really easy to install as well. So check it out. Go to thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp for $111 off. Once again, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp for $111 off. Our next sponsor is Lucy, and Lucy is one of the best delivery mechanisms for nicotine. It's a nicotine gum that's not like Nicorette or something like that. It tastes great, and it delivers nicotine with the purpose being to utilize this as a nootropic, as a way to actually enhance brain function. And if you read my book, Own the Day, I talk about all of the different ways that nicotine is a beneficial nootropic. Now, of course, cigarettes are awful for you. It's a terrible way to get nicotine. It does so much damage to the body. But this gum is a different delivery mechanism, and I think you'll find it incredibly valuable and accretive if this is something that you're called to. So the flavors are wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. They have four milligrams of nicotine. There's also a new cherry ice flavor. So check it out if this is something you're called to. Of course, if you're not called to utilize nicotine at all, then this isn't for you, and that's absolutely fine. So 20% off any order at lucy.co with the promo code AMP. That's L-U-C-Y dot C-O with the promo code AMP and you'll get 20% off. And also there's a disclaimer with any tobacco products 
And that's the warning. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. And of course, from my own perspective, anytime you dance with any of these different types of drugs or chemicals or plants, make sure that you're driving the ship and the plant, drug, or chemical isn't driving you. And lastly, we have on it. This is the foundation where I've put all of the information, tools, techniques, everything that I could think of to help optimize the human body. That's where it lives, onit.com. So please check it out. We have so many different things from Alpha Brain to optimize cognitive performance to Shroom Tech Sport to optimize physical performance to the total human, which is another level of what people think of when they think of a multivitamin to all of the training methodologies and training tools and even just the information that we have available at the Onnit Academy blog. So please check it out. Onnit.com slash Aubrey gives you 10% off of all of these tools and all of these training programs. And it's truly the best that myself, all the top athletes, all the top doctors could come up with. These are things that people can use to just bring themselves to the very best version of themselves. So check out onnit.com slash Aubrey. That's O-N-N-I-T dot com slash Aubrey for 10% off forevers. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Eric Davis. Eric Davis. Good to have you on the show, brother. Hey, it's, it's fun to be here already. Yeah, man. So this is a cool opportunity because you wrote a book called High Weirdness. And so let's get weird, man. Let's get weird. I feel like you have access to information about the occult, about psychedelics, about a lot of interesting things. I know you talk a lot about a lot of them in the book that I haven't got a chance to read cover to cover, which is my intention. But what are some of the interesting kind of stories in history that you've exposed in in exploring these things at length. I mean, you're really kind of like the the dawn of this category as uh, as I talk to people about it, just how it's woven into society and culture and our history and our growth and and even not only where we were, but where we're going. And we'll ultimately talk about technology as well. But when we're looking back first through the lens of the past, you know, wh- what do you see when you look about how all of this stuff came about and any stories that you find particularly interesting? Yeah, sure. No, that's great. I, I, I appreciate the, the probe. I, I'm kind of like, a, I, somehow I became like a doctor of weirdness. And uh, <laughs> this wasn't exactly my intent, but I've always been interested in, in the fringe. Uh, you know, and, and as I've been freelance writing for, for decades. And, you know, I got a PhD. And when I, I studied that, the book that you hold is the is a the kind of published version of my PhD. And by the way, I also recommend that I, I read the audiobook and a lot of people find the audiobook a little bit more into entertaining and engaging because oh, cool. the book can be a little uh, hard going at some points. I mean, it is a, a work of scholarship, but also a work of weirdness. Um, so I've always been interested in this stuff, you know, psychedelics, the occult, uh, UFOs, weird subcultures, um, you know, problematic, uh, uh, un- unpredictable religions and cults. People, people are so excited right now listening to all those things. Well, Every listener is like, yes, give it to us, Eric, give it to us. No, it's crazy because well, what's so weird about my, my experience of this stuff is just that was always my interest. I was, I was kind of, a, you know, I was a weird head in the 19, early 1980s growing up in Southern California, kind of with the, the fumes of the, of the hippie counterculture still in the air and going to dead shows and just kind of being like, you know, a bit of a weirdo or exploring different 
religions and things like that. And I just never stopped. And like in the <laughs> early 1990s, you know, that wasn't that cool. Like, you know, psychedelics <laughs> weren't that cool. They were sort of, you know, and then the, you had rave and that kind of brought some of it back in the 90s or whatever. But I've just been on this stuff for a long time. And now it's everywhere. I mean, <laughs> you were ahead of the curve. You had I your mean, surfboard in the water just waiting for those sets to roll in. You know, it's so it's a really funny time to be because now I've been around it so much that it's not you know, it may be like for the reasons that I was into it when I was younger aren't, aren't as pressing for me personally, but I feel like I'm, I'm like, I carry all this lore because it wasn't just an object of study. It was something that I was participating in. I was very much like an anthropologist kind of participant observer all the way through. And so now I feel like I actually have like inherited it's almost like if I was in a, a indigenous culture, I, I've, I've received the wisdom from the wisdom holders. It's just mm -hmm. that I got the weirdness from the weirdness <laughs> holders. And now it's like, I feel like I got to stand up for it. And why I say that in part, I mean, one of the ways to approach your question is that, you know, right now, every, as everyone knows, psychedelics are just booming. I mean, it's just incredible. Not just the explosion of new research, the shift in public, uh, perception, you know, back when I was a younger man, you'd never see a positive article about psychedelics in the New York Times or the mm. New Yorker or anything like that. And now like the mainstream has sort of accepted the, the healing capacities and the positive outcomes. And, and then also like huge interest from capitalism. So, you know, there's like hundreds of millions of dollars that are being raised for different ideas of pharmaceutical formulations, clinics, uh, new healing regimens. So every, it's like a gold rush, right? Mm -hmm. But one thing that's happening with all of that, whether you're thinking like clinical research or, you know, wellness or pharmaceutical companies, nobody wants to hear the message that whatever else psychedelics do, however much they heal and integrate, and revivify our spiritual natures and plug us into the matrix of nature and give us, um, you know, reboot our brains to give us a sort of freshness and a new way of thinking. Whatever else they do, they are also really frigging weird. That whatever <laughs> goes down, especially in the deep zones, is, you know, a mystery with a capital M. And so in a way, there's kind of this game of like, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. And I'm like, the elephant in the room, folks, is that if you go down this path very far and if you go down it very hard, it, it's not going to be that clear what's going on a lot of the time. And so one of the ways that I do that is to just remember these stories. Like, again, all of those groups don't really want to hear about the high and holy days of the freak counterculture because that's all like, that's kind of what you want to get away from. We don't want to right. hear about Timothy Leary. We don't want to hear about, you know, the huge doses of acid that young people were taking without any structured environment. That's just too much. And yes, there was a lot of damage. I'm not a Pollyanna, but that's kind of like one of the reasons that led to this book, High Weirdness, which is really focused on the 70s and some of these psychedelic heroes from those days is to recover their stories, show them as being intelligent, critical, exploring, spiritual, free-thinking people, not idiots, not 
true believers, not um, mere hedonists, to, to give them some respect, but also to show that their experiences were really far out and that it's hard, it's hard to integrate exactly what the, the meaning of all that is. So in yeah. that sense, I'm kind of a carrier of that conundrum. Yeah. That's an important role to be playing because it's very easy to take that myopic look and look at the window on something like treatment resistant PTSD or something like end of life anxiety or depression and say, aha, this is what this compound is doing to help assist this in, in virtually miraculous way, paradigm shifting ways, instead of a constant treatment, we're talking about cures that are happening, but still, nonetheless, these things in my you know, in my view of it, they're happening as a side effect, as like a tangential side effect of what the experience is actually offering. And so, yes, it may do all of these different things. And I bet there's dozens and dozens more different clinical applications that are going to be uncovered and revealed because the fundamental thing is very weird and very, you know, transcendental and very ineffable ultimately with the side effects many of which can be positive especially if you structure it along with psychotherapy in the right environment in the right dose and you get a lot of things dialed in and right but uh but there's deep rabbit holes that don't have rabbits in them they got dragons and snakes and chimeras of all sort yeah no i mean and speaking of the you know the dragons and snakes the or the let's just call it you know demons is that what one and another thing that I'm kind of interested in, or I think that's important now, not just in terms of remi- remembering the weird and you know what exactly the doors we're opening to can bring you know with them, is that our sense of enthusiasm right now for these compounds should be mitigated with some skepticism. And the skepticism is not based on disbelieving the curative properties. It's clear to me from just anecdotal experience, let alone the research that's being done, that obviously in a lot of these contexts, you know, particularly something like end of life uh, depression or anxiety, which to my mind is almost in a different category because in some sense we could all be take, you know, we could all get that prescription, <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's, that's actually 100%. an interesting aspect of it. So I kind of, there's certain aspects of it that I have a lot, a, a lot more, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less critical of, um, but the hype and it is hype and it's hype partly to, you know, raise the profile of new companies coming into the space to get the uh, venture capital to go into these places and for a whole new wave of healers and wellness coaches and therapists motivated largely by the best intentions to get excited again about healing people because there's a larger context. And what's that larger context? Call it the mental health crisis, or as I prefer to think about it in slightly less um, disease-oriented terms, the meaning crisis. Mm. We are in a crisis of the mind. And from the pharmaceutical point of view, we haven't come up with anything new since Prozac in the early 1980s, late 70s, early 80s. And even Prozac and the other sorts of SSRIs, they're not that good. They're okay. They work for some people, but they're eh. And that's a long time ago to come up with new new solutions. So part of what you're seeing is like this whole industry for good and selfish reasons, going, whoa, Nelly, something new, and let's, let's run with this. But there's a problem there. 
which is that if you know the history of pharmaceutical or you know uh, I you know psychopharmaceutical medicine in the 20th century is that there's a pattern that's very obvious which is that there's a new solution and when that new solution becomes announced and becomes part of training regimens becomes part of the media it's treated with great utopian expectation thank god we've finally found a solution to mental health problems lobotomies or <laughs> electroshock therapy or thorazine or valium well kids all of those things might have their places but they are not golden tickets to healing because mental health problems crises crises of meaning psychosis intense anxiety they're written very deeply into maybe not the human condition, but certainly the modern human condition. And so it's, part of our enthusiasm is because we think, hey, this, this is going to work. And it may. That's the thing that I think, because these are in a different class. Those things you mentioned, and they're all based on a different hypothesis, a hypothesis of a broken brain that just needs the regular addition of another chemical, constantly tightening this one screw over and over again in this machine, or doing something to... This is a different thing. This is kind of recognizing, even though the language of the, to get it passed through the FDA may not be recognizing it. I think it's the integration of spirit and mind as the way to address this. And so it is, in my opinion, a dramatically different approach that I think can yield a significantly better result. However, I think these, these voices of caution that you're bringing up are very important because I have seen the dark side. I've been in ayahuasca ceremonies and seen people absolutely lose it and get into you know manic suicidal ideation i've seen people go into really dark dark every single night as they dream they're back in hell and they're experiencing something that's incredibly challenging the reactivations and there is a there is a, a shadow side of this now there's a shadow side of all of these different other options this is not exclusive to psychedelics but the moment we put it as this panacea as this holy water this holy medicine that can do no wrong and is just going to cure everything that's where we have a problem we have to approach it with deep deep respect for both what it could happen what could happen negatively and what could potentially happen positively this is a new ball game yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, and I, I don't want it to be seen as I'm, I'm just poo-pooing the whole enterprise. <laughs> I'm not at all. I just, you know, that's my job in a way is to push back against hype or mm -hmm. ideas that I think are, are too simplistic and that there are a great deal of complexities and that these complexities exist not just on the level of, of risk, let's say people who, ha who do have a propensity for something like psychosis and might have a break, that in a way that you're not you know, expecting, and that's part of the population, and we have to always remember that. But also on the spiritual level, that the idea that whatever, how, whatever your framework is, like whether it's you know, Mother Ayahuasca, or it's the great, uh, the, the oneness of, of all existence, or whatever your sort of model of the good as being channeled through or represented through these experiences and these substances inside and outside of traditional or spiritual contexts is that it's not always so clear. And that part of what you're opening yourself up for is a journey that I believe, if you are paying attention, actually 
in, in some sense, you learn partly by, you know, not getting the big message, not always mm. knowing when you're getting the big message. It's actually an invitation to a kind of, uh, uh, how would I say it? It's, almost, it's like a learning process more than a purely healing process. And that's, that's again, what I'm saying. It's like, like healing is great. Again, I'm not saying don't heal. I'm not saying <laughs> if you have PTSD, don't try this at all. These things are all, we all are wounded. There's healing in the picture, but in some senses, we're never really fully healed. And at the very least, we die. And as we approach death, we have anxiety, we have terror, we have regret, we have remorse, we have sadness, we have loss. Maybe we have some space of openness and curiosity even as well, but it's, it's a heavy deal. So even if you're totally healed psychologically and totally healed in your body, you're going to die. And, you know, and that, so then that becomes part of it too. Yeah. I think what you're saying about really focusing on this is a way to learn and it's a challenging way to learn. Every single time you go into this, you're confronting the dragon of chaos and that dragon often holds gold, but only if you're willing to learn and pay attention and only if you're ready to confront, you know, and, and integrate what you actually, to actually keep the gold that you, you harvested from that situation instead of worrying about that you know continuing on this relentless conquest for more and more and more which tends to spin people off into kind of some of the manic thinking and results but really be have that ruthlessly honest introspection because even sometimes the big messages that you get are wrong sometimes it's your ego that's telling you these big messages like i've had people all kinds of people i had one woman who was convinced that water told her that she was the stewardess of all water for all people of the world and the one who is going to communicate water's interest to the world. I'm like, I, I doubt it. <laughs> you know, like, I doubt it. But, you know, and, and you could see that she was locked in this self-importance and this kind of feeling from that message. And that's where that healthy skepticism comes in. Like, yeah. all right, what did I learn? What did it show me? Is that showing me more about me? I mean, recently in an ayahuasca ceremony, I was with a bunch of people from my community who happened to be there and some other strangers, but the people in my community who were there, I was appearing to them in their vision in, in many, many different times. And a lot of times they believed that I was actually in their vision and I was showing up as a bunny. And they're like, you showed up as a bunny. I was like, no, I didn't. What really showed up is your desire to make me, who you've put on a pedestal in your mind, into something that's friendly and comfortable so that you could actually interact with me in a way that makes sense. And I'm not even me. I'm just the archetype of probably a father or probably a coach or a leader or some aspect that's appearing now as a bunny. But all of these different meta, meta rules for how to look at these things need to be in place or otherwise you're like, Aubrey is a bunny. I figured it out. You know, it's like, no, I'm not a bunny. You know, I can be if I'm in that, you know, but this is not the, uh, that's not right. the message that's coming across. Well, for me, when I hear you just to tell that story, which is a story about, you know, your own, how you show up as whatever you want to call it, a, a leader or as a, a, a figure of inspiration for other people and how for you, part of that involves recognizing that there's projection and desire and, and some degree of, of idolization, but also recognizing that your responsibility as a teacher and as just a person is to deconstruct that in some, in some way so that you, it, it opens up the field rather than 
uh, simplifying things. And to right. my mind, when I hear you say that, I go, oh, here's somebody who's been paying attention in his sessions. I mean, to me, that's part of what the message of psychedelics is. And one way of saying it is that it's, it, that psychedelic, mature psychedelic work is as much about disenchantment as it is about enchantment. I think mm. a lot of modern people coming to it because we, we look at the world, we look at the hollowness of popular culture, of our own upbringing, of the internet, of the disconnection of people from themselves or other people or nature, all, all the reasons that people are, are suffering and struggling and seeking, they come in the, and the, the visions are so remarkable, the sense of the, the emotions, the sense of certainty, the sense of, conf, of encounter with other orders of being. I mean, it's also delicious and marvelous that the enchantment side initially seems to be the message that the world is this way, that you are a, a holy being, that you are connected with the great spirit of the planet, that trees are alive, that everything's talking to you. <laughs> and those are all wonderful uh, experiences to go through. But if you're not also, as you say, bringing this kind of questioning to bear, then you're going to get stuck in a way, in a kind of, not infantilized exactly, but a sort of um, too religious perspective, I would say, of kind of devotionalism to your own fabrication. Mm. And it's particularly tricky in, let's say, ayahuasca culture, because uh, neo you know, Western neo-shamanic ayahuasca culture is like, on the one hand, everybody's encouraged to have their personal experiences and that's where you find the answers and that's where the truth is your message from mother ayahuasca for this or that or this or that now of course they're incredibly contradictory and nobody's saying well you know maybe maybe that's you know if you go if you're sitting in an ayahuasca circle and somebody says i realize that i am the 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 sole representative of water for planet earth <laughs> Most people aren't going to say anything. There's no culture for saying, hey, I, you know, I don't know you, but you know, you might want to like sit with that one for a little while, like in the context of yeah. like everyone just has their own experience. But at the same time, it, it, there's no way to sort of judge it against any other metric because we're all in this postmodern relativism. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky zone and it's really incumbent. And that's a lot of the way I see my role to the degree I have one is is to show how you can go deeper into the mystery, into experiences. For me, meditation is as least as, at least as important as psychedelics in many ways, at least as I've gotten older, but a lot of the same issues come up. And it's like, it's about bringing not just critical thinking or skepticism, but also like watch your own desire for meaning with a capital M. Yeah. In a way, the world is full of meaning. And in another way, tricky, not really clear where it is, who's inventing it, where it comes from, what a meaningful thing is or what things mean. And people get trapped, I believe, especially coming out of a modern hollow sense of the world of like leaping onto this capital M meaning and, and then it ends up kind of distorting you. And I really don't think that that's, that's, really is as helpful as kind of working with it in a more like a feedback way. You get a vision. What does that mean? What is my projection? How do I really think about it? Maybe I don't really know, but oh no, some things really stay with me. Maybe it's that like in this example, okay, I'm not the sole representative of water for the planet, but actually 
I, I've been looking for, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, political action or some kind yeah, of way purpose, to bring my environmentalism into play. Well, let's do water. Mm -hmm. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I think the, the same way that we do with dreams, we have a dream and we don't think, well, I guess some people do. They think like I was, something happened in a dream and it ordained you in a certain way or gave you a, a clear directive and and sometimes it can be accessing aspects of your subconscious just like psychedelics can that can give you clear direction i mean i've received clear directions about ways to go with my company on it and my ayahuasca journey that were absolutely spot on really good solid advice and but in another way you have to look at this like a like a dream interpretation you know going back to the classic okay this is maybe not this person this is a my anima or my animus and this is a way that i'm interacting with a part of myself and what does that mean? What are my desires? What am I looking for? What is that telling me? And just kind of keep that curiosity. And then for me, the barometer is not whether this is real or not real. Some things do feel very real. You know, like you do a 5-MEO journey, that feeling of God is very, in, it's very indescribably real, right? But nonetheless, like just keeping that remembrance that Let's just take a look at this. Let's take a look at what this what this means and, and decipher it for ourselves and ultimately ask the question, is this enriching my life and enriching the life of those around me? And and you need that feedback loop to really understand that. And you need to have true peers, people who have the the brass to say, like, hey, hey, like, you know, let's see where your mind's going. Let's look at this and let's talk about it and have that just kind of temperance to do it. And then ultimately understand whether you're on a path that's enriching yours and, and those around you which is the path of growth which is where we're all trying to go anyways or whether it's not whether it's steering you into some you know strange strange territory the weirdness that's not the good kind of weirdness yeah and and weirdness uh, you know part of the reason i use that term um is because it's ambivalent because it's neither good or evil or it's somewhere in between or it's part of both there's something a little unsettling about it unnerving maybe even a little bit wrong about it or perverse or too much and yet it's also a sign of enchantment of moving into something where i'm not really in control anymore the uncanny is an invitation to go deeper into the mystery whether in nature or in our own unconscious or in the world of dreams so that's part of what i what i want to do by underscoring the the weird Here, here's a, here's another example for it again to talk about uh you know contemporary ayahuasca culture since that's sort of already been what we've been bringing up and it's a good example is that almost everybody going into that situation in from a neo-shamanic western perspective has it has or not almost everybody a lot of people have the idea that it's just good that that mother ayahuasca is you know uh, a trustworthy grandmother and everything that happens is part of your own unfolding and is part of the plan. This is, shall we say, not the way it is for most uh, Amerindian groups in the Amazon, many of whom, by the way, have not been taking ayahuasca for very long. You know, a lot of the groups that are now associated with traditional holders of ayahuasca have been doing it for a hundred years or less. Um, so they're part of their own kind of movement through history that we often miss because we need our fantasies by, by we, I mean like, you know, Westerners coming into this space. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the point I'm trying to make here that's more important is that in, in those cultures, ayahuasca, the powers and visions, the beings, 
the learnings, they take place in a more ambivalent space. It's not always clear what the, where the, who's giving you the message. There's, there's a dark side to it. There's a sorcerous side to it. There are, po there are poison darts and bad shamans and protection spells and uh, masks and untruths. And it's not always clear what's going on. And to my mind, this is a more appropriate attitude to bring towards the world of psychedelics, which is that there may be extraordinary God moments and insights into the structure of reality, senses of connection. All of those are there, but there's also a tricksy realm. And that part of the learning is to be someone who is able to take the, the good stuff, the stuff that you need, the stuff that works, the stuff that connects you to other people, that connects you to the world, to your role in society or your, what you want to do in, in the world, and be able to also keep that, that wariness about other aspects of it, and that that's part of the learning. It's like it wants you to be more of a, uh, I don't want to say autonomous individual because that's not right, but it's someone who's able to be in the midst of mysteries and not be gobsmacked one way or the other. Mm. Neither be terrified by the demons while recognizing that it's that you may not want to be here. There might be a reason that you don't want to be here. It might not be that these are just the figures of your unconscious coming up. It's like, no, I, I want to get to another dimension now, please. That might be a good attitude. Who knows? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. So we have to kind of work with this not knowing in the midst of it. And that is also part of individuation. Like it's not like uh, Native uh, American shamans are all just experiencing the oneness of reality. They don't really talk about oneness very much. They talk about powers and visions, and even visions are often not that as important for some groups as bodily sensations of capturing spirits in your body, of purging, of spit and vomit and you know it's a very different kind of mode and so it, it's like we have to allow the enchantments to arise but pay very close attention to how they break down and what lies behind that is usually something that's less predictable weirder more unsettling maybe also more beautiful because not our own ideas and to move deeper into those encounters requires a kind of maturity and an ability to sort of keep your own center of gravity uh, in the midst of these changing reality fields. Yeah. Um, and I'll and just, I'll just, uh, uh, just to give a final image of that and then love to hear what you have to say is in, in high weirdness. I talk about this as the tightrope walk where you're moving, you're off solid ground, you're on a tightrope, you're surrounded by very peculiar multiple dimensions, but you maintain a sort of balance that involves reason, paying attention, breathing, keeping your body clear. But, you know, the world you're in is very unusual, no longer grounded at all. But working with that energy is, I think, a very powerful lesson and learning through psychedelics it's also applicable to just navigating our increasingly insane reality so yeah i mean it, if you're learning how to play a sport or learn a new activity there's just def different rules i mean you, i like the analogy of the tightrope walk 
the idea that you're going to want either a bar or your hands out to help you find your balance, right? So that's just wisdom from another tightrope walker to another. If you're teaching your child how to you know, walk on this tightrope, that would be the way. All right, so then there's wisdom for the psychonaut. There's wisdom for exploring these realms, some of which you mentioned. The other, if you do encounter that darkness, like what are the strategies for you to encounter that well? typically some aspect of love and surrender and finding yourself in a place of you know autonomous you know peace and protection and with with the love for that like that's generally good advice you know like how do you how do you navigate this you don't want to attack it and freak out and get lost in fear that's the opposite that would be like flailing around on the rope or trying to jump off the rope you know down into the chasm right so there's just wisdom that you can have to help you navigate it uh, but understanding that this is a you're 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 on that tightrope and it is it is perilous it can yield you it can bridge you across to incredible healing and incredible states but be mindful of how you're walking when you're walking once you're ready what your strategy is how to navigate your breath where to place your feet how to use your arms mm-hmm. and uh and i think that's like you said a big part of the maturity you know, what i'm curious what go ahead go ahead uh, what i'm curious about is tell us tell tell us all about a story of someone who didn't navigate it very well mm. and and something you know a kind of a cautionary tale of someone who thought they were you know the great tightrope walker of all tightrope walkers perhaps but you know ultimately what lost their bearings well actually that's it's funny you should say that because in in high weirdness i concentrate on three guys from this you know who had wild experiences in the 70s terence mckenna i'm sure most of your listeners know uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who was also a psychedelic uh, person, a writer, a fantasy in, in science fiction, but also of, um, a lot of kind of like underground philosophical classics. He was a very influential character, although not necessarily super well known, but very, very, he- very heavy, very funny, very much uh, in this sort of line of the tightrope walker of keeping your skepticism and your critical thinking going as you enter into very weird realms. He was also really into occult practice and would mix, you know, occult rites with psychedelics and tantric sex and try to just get as far out as he could while keeping his feet on the ground in some sense. And then the last person I talk about is the science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick, who really wasn't that into psychedelics. He just took him a few times um, he did t- do a lot of other drugs, but his experiences were more from within. He was, you know, less neurotypical than the other guys, and so he actually had visionary slash psychotic experiences and had to sort of figure out how to live with them. Um, and one of the reasons I picked these people, or the way that I talk about them, is th- is that they don't all ultimately fail, but they all slip off the rope in various mm. ways, and that part of what I'm showing is how that happens and then how you kind of get back on you know so it's not just like an either or like you're you're good and then you're bad and you're toast (laughs) right right. i mean that does happen people lose it you know people wind up in loony in loony bins or they become completely psychologically inflated and believe they're a god and and then get a little cult around them and do no one any good you know that those things do happen they're relatively rare but they can happen um so you know, so for example, what happened with Robert Anton Wilson, again, is he's like a very smart guy, very critical thinker, skeptical, funny, edgy, polymath, knows lots of stuff. So he starts doing these sorts of rituals. It's the early 70s. He's living in Berkeley. 
He's a freelance writer, not a lot of money. He's in this scene where there's a lot of occult practitioners and psychedelic people and people studying weird physics. And, you know, so it's a very heady zone. And he starts doing these rituals and he starts noticing synchronicities like, oh, like synchronicities come in heavy. Like, what's this about the number 23? And what's this about the planet Sirius? And I'm reading this history of Aleister Crowley and it's making rep weights. So things start to come together. All at 11-11. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's totally 11-11 stuff. But he's super skeptical, right? But, But he reaches a point where it breaks down. He can't keep that ironic distance anymore. And there's a period of, of his life, which is a lot of what I'm talking about in the book, of about a year or so, a little bit more, where he's convinced that he's being communicated with from uh, by extraterrestrial intelligences associated with the plant, with the star system Sirius, and that he's getting these messages all the time, and they're in his dreams, and there's in the synchronicity. So he basically loses the plot for a while, and then gets back. And he tells the story of like how he kind of recovered himself, you know, got his feet back on the ground, not through just going, well, this isn't very rational. It's not that. It's something more complicated and subtle. I mean, I won't get into the details, but it's almost more about going through than pulling back. Mm -hmm. And he has an idea here that's really important, I think, for certainly deep travelers which is this idea of Chapel Perilous. And Chapel Perilous comes from Arthurian lore or, or Holy Grail lore, excuse me. And, uh, but the way he uses it is it's basically sometimes on this kind of path, especially when you're diving into mysteries and studying conspiracy theory and doing occult practice and all this crazy mind-bending stuff, you get to a place where you can't go back the way you came. And you're in a room and there's only two ways out, he says. I think there, there are probably more, but he says there's two ways out. You either come out totally paranoid or what he said calls a stone-cold agnostic. An agnostic, meaning you don't really know. Mm. And it's, it's a way of remembering how you don't really know, not as a kind of nihilism oh who knows nobody knows everybody's just confused not like that it's a way of remembering that you don't know as a way to move through these zones and not get caught and captured by your own fantasies by the weirdness of reality uh and that kind of quality is is one of the things that i'm trying to kind of model through these stories so he was able to get out of this thing and look back and go yeah i kind of Kind of lost it there. <laughs> I'm glad I got back. But, you know, he still kept on thinking about all this weird stuff. It's just he maintained a kind of quality that I think is really important, not just for psychedelic users, but because we're, we're already in a world that's going to only become more ferociously narrativized, virtualized, dominated by ideologies, by claims, by fantasies, by virtual realities, by alternative reality games, propaganda, mind, whatever you want to call it, mind control if you want. So these are not just, you know, tricks for the tripper. They're tricks to stay awake in this very peculiar world that we are now in. Well said, well said. I mean, I think in some ways I look, sometimes these psychedelic experiences can be like 
you know, Dr. Strange's little playground where he learns and you cast spells and you try to fi- you're trying to figure these things out because we are going to encounter these in in society as well. The, these manic delusional fantasies. I mean, I don't really want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but ultimately I had, you know, friends, people who are just solid, like feet on the ground, people who are who are still convinced, actually even now and have been convinced at various stages that Trump is still going to be the president for the next 4 years, right? Like this is a psychedelic fantasy. This is a manic this is a manic delusion that's being fed that is arriving on typically sane people. So until you've actually unless you've really trained yourself and trained yourself to realize, oh, this is a mystery. This is interesting. Some things don't add up, but let's not make the cognitive leap to try and fill in all the gaps. Let's just allow it to be a mystery. There's some weirdness going on. All right. And there are a variety, a multiplicity of different realities that could actually take effect, but maintaining that, meh, I think that's probably unlikely, but there is that possibility. Like even as you mentioned, I do believe that there is a possibility that there are beings that are discarnate that were communicating with them. It's not that, oh, all beings communicating is real, aren't real. I think in some cases that very well might be happening and we have to be open to that hypothesis. And with these conspiracies, all right, maybe some of them are actually right. But let's maintain that kind of, uh, we don't know, like we're not sure. Let's take a look at this and just take it all with a grain of salt, so to speak. And there's there's also, there's another way too that's that's not just that kind of suspension of who knows or belief on one side or and, and suspension on the other. There's also a, a kind of middle path which involves not literalizing. So the idea there is like so you have you you see this being let, let's take the water example. You know, the, uh, uh, an anaconda comes out of your visionary <laughs> lake and says, you are the representative of water on the planet Earth. You are the soul, you know, whatever. And then in reflecting on that, integrating it, whatever you want to call it, you're like, well, if I literalize this, on that path lies inflation, lies a lot of things that are, you know, cognitively challenging or Mm -hmm. maybe go against my normal view of how reality works. But... If I just go, ah, oh, yeah, it was just a dream. Who knows? Whatever. It was just a fantasy. Well, it's not very interesting either. Right. What's maybe there's somewhere in between where you're like, oh, this is some kind of like a dream image, like an allegory, like a, a, an image in a poem that you have to interpret, but it's your own poem. And as you wrestle with it, could it be this? Could it be that? Oh, remember how that there was one part of the visual where why was the anaconda purple? There's something about purple that's, wait, that reminds me, you know, that kind of work. Sure. Like, like with dreams, you, you might get to something that's more meaningful, but that same kind of interpretation can, and I think in many ways should be applied to a lot of conspiracies. So if we take like, whatever, satanic pedophile Hollywood, and I like you, I'm so sick of this stuff. I don't want to spend very much time with it. And okay. I've I've seen everybody like you or me knows people just like what you said, where they seem to have their feet on the ground and they got absorbed. And that's why this stuff is really urgent. It's not just for freaks on the fringe anymore. It's clearly part of reality, these issues we're dealing with. But, you know, so on the one hand, yeah, this is what they're doing and they're using mind control and they're all run this way and they're da-da-da and it's all part of this huge elaborate thing. And you're like, okay, whoa, man, (laughs) you know. Not only does that is that sort of far out, but it's also if you're a historian like me, you know that it's built from pieces of other earlier myths that go back 300 years, yeah, or 
250 years. Let's, let's give it that. And it's very clear. Oh, this well, is even, like that. even sometimes longer, even sometimes all the way back to Beowulf or the Odyssey yeah. or, you know, deep, deep stories of those Mesopotamian myths of Marduk and, and, you know, these creation myths. And I think Jordan Peterson does a really good job describing how some of these myths, these are imprinted stories, so to speak. And we can find ourselves in the current of that applying modern circumstance to these deep archetypal callings. One of the reasons why we like Star Wars so much. You know, this this massive evil that's accumulating and then us playing in this in this kind of resistance role and just barely being able to overcome this. These stories are just a part somehow of our collective unconscious fabric of how we tend to see the world. And maybe every once in a while, there's some truth to it. And right. sometimes it's just our mind. But that middle path, like you said, is so important to just stay in the middle where you're you're learning about yourself always, no matter what. Yeah. And I mean, and that's a, a good example too, where you can say, well, actually, you know, our, our society economically, environmentally, it's so, it's so messed up in so many ways. That's really hard. If you just look at it in a purely like factual secular hat on way, there's just so many issues that those, that sense that I think we all have this, that there are many things that are profoundly wrong which maybe is always part of human experience, but is heightened and intensified by technology and by the, you know, just the, the, the moment we're in, that those feelings are legitimate and then they animate these suspicions about power, which are justified. Why do some people have so much power in the world and other people don't? So, you know, I can look at someone like, why does it, how can a, a Bill Gates even exist? How do we have something like, a global emperor because of his wealth and his ability to do whatever. Do I personally think that Bill Gates himself and his actions is similar to this kind of satanic archetype? No, not at all. But I can totally understand why somebody looking at that and particularly looking at, you know, once you get involved with making interventions in health and people's live, you know, whatever, that, you know, there's a, the, the terror of that is legitimate because it's about how power is, is so skewed and, and, and extreme in our moment. So, so what, I'm, what I've been trying to do is rather than just go, you guys are all about, you know, batshit crazy, you should just, you know, <laughs> chill out or get sucked into these things, even though sometimes I'm quite sensitive and I... I I go along the ride and I start to feel like, well, maybe it's true. I just have that kind of mind. I have, I have a very, well, maybe it's true kind of approach to things, which I've tried to harness to be able to understand where people are coming from, but not get stuck. And so I find myself somewhere in between where I'm trying to recognize what is true, not in the sense of an objective claim about reality, but true as a response to conditions. and. But there's another thing you pointed out that was really important where you talk about particularly um, Star Wars and the good and evil. You know, one of the things that fuels conspiracy stuff is a lot of it is a bait with what you could call as a religious studies person, Manichaeism, which means that the, the cosmos is ultimately composed of good and evil. You know, a lot indigenous cosmologies aren't like that. Right. They're they're composed of mixed creatures. It's like what I was saying earlier about assuming that that uh, grandmother ayahuasca is completely benign and that everything that happens to you is is benign. 
is to my mind not in accord with Amerindian cosmology for the most part, which is a much more mixed field where there's ambivalent characters and you make deals and swaps and you got to stay on your toes because good and evil are, are mixed. It's not that there isn't bad, but it's, it's much less clear. There's something in us, as, certainly as Westerners, where we inherit this good and evil model, you know, Satan and, and, and God, good, you know, dark and I think light. That's a, I think that's a, actually a key point that you make. I actually think Christianity was, you know, one of the key elements when they actually, so they actually created beings, all the beings before, even Zeus, Odin, everybody, they're very human. They're that intermixed, just like every villain in any good movie, you see their good, you see their dark, every hero, you see their dark impulses and their good, you see the mixed nature of all beings. But Christianity did a very interesting thing, which they identified the extremes of the polarity, Christ and Lucifer, right? And they just pushed, okay, now we're going to create and these archetypes i think all archetypes exist right so if you can hypothesize an archetype of all good which is pure good pure love pure forgiveness pure you know pure divinity okay call that christ consciousness okay pure evil pure delusion pure destruction pure chaos okay that's lucifer and then they they stretched the polarity and then they created this exact like binary system of ones and zeros which is very, very interesting contribution to our psyche and in some ways can be helpful, but it doesn't apply to hardly anything other than like a philosophical concept of, yeah. okay, now we've marked the sides, but everything else is going to be in between. And, and I think that's like, that's where it's really interesting. But I, I, I really have gotten an appreciation for that Christian mythology of they were really the first, as far as I know, to really mark the ends and then really talk about only the ends and try to fit everybody into a one and a zero when everything is a fucking fraction. Yeah. Yeah. And it can get even more extreme, even in, in Christianity, there's some forms of like Manichaeism where the, 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 the evil power has more power. Like it, Christian Christians will still say, well, yeah, but the world's still good. You know, that's that, that, you know, even Kings and yeah, they're, they're messed up, but power structures, there's still something about God that's supporting them. Whereas some people are like, no, the whole world is evil. We're just trying to get out, you know, like, a, <laughs> like extreme Gnosticism. Right. So you, and that's what you see in a lot of conspiracy theory is that the evil is so evil and it's totalizing. It's not just like those guys over there in that one part of society are evil. It's that at that level, the whole thing is rotten all the way through and then that allows us to feel like we're the you know the the uh, resistance or the jedis who are you know l learning how to fight against that evil because so we're clean so it feels good and yeah, i think it's like one creating of the, a foil it's like creating a foil it's creating a, a, a darkness that's so dark that it makes our light appear lighter in, in a certain way right which is obviously feeding into our own moral hierarchy our own ability and desire to feel good which is a denial of our own inherent darkness we're all of it sorry sorry everybody out there but we're all the fucking things you know that's a, yeah. that was a really clear message that i've received over and over like there's no darkness or evil that i can if i look with enough of a magnifying glass really down there i can find that i can find whatever is, has existed i can find that and that's been shown in like the you know the stanford guards experiment and all of these different places like everybody has these dark impulses and everybody 
I also believe has these light impulses. And this is the this is the real world. And the sooner we accept that instead of pretending that we're all one way and pretending that some other aspect of the world is all one way, I think it's so fucking rare to see somebody who's even close to these, you know, ones and zeros, even that 0.99 or 0.01, you know, as you're getting close to the extremes, where? You know, where? All right, you look at someone like Hitler, for example, did probably as much evil as any human being in history. But in his mind, he still believed that he was doing a good thing for the world. He had to. He wasn't, as far as my understanding of history, he wasn't intentionally a force of evil, although his actions were all evil, right? Like, there, it's a very interesting thing where even the most evil person, objectively, subjectively, believes they're doing good <laughs> you know so it's like whoa whoa yeah it's 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 a it's a it's a mess and even if you want to say okay this is all kind of philosophical and whatever let's just talk about really concrete things like nasty things that are happening in in reality right now like whatever like you know manipulation of stock markets and make people wealthy at the same time or uh the you know suppression of people's voices or uh the destruction of the environment for personal gain and greed and you know all all the things that you know people point to again i think part of what's attractive about conspiracy theory and and anytime i can say conspiracy theory and you've already said it i always have to say look i'm not saying that all conspiracy theory is untrue there are clearly conspiracies people who think about them and follow them up and research them just the way that QAnon people talked about that. That's part of what we have to do. I'm not saying it's like, I'm not just taking a like, Oh, if you can call a conspiracy theory, it's not worth paying attention to. I always just have to say that as kind of a, a caveat. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. what I think one of the reasons that people are attracted to it now is because we're so inundated with information about how screwed up and terrifying everything is and how messy uh, you know, there's possibilities, not, not a completely bleak situation. There's rooms to, room to maneuver. But in a lot of ways, we're just inundated with these very dark visions. And we realize we're, there's nowhere to go. We're trapped in it. In fact, we reproduce it. You know, every time we pick up a phone, it's like, oh, I'm picking up a surveillance device that's used <laughs> by Silicon Valley companies to track everything about me in accordance with uh, the alphabetical agencies. Oh, and by the way, it's made with... Uh, rare earth metals that are extracted in these really horrific ways that are very problematic environmentally. Oh, and when I'm done with it, it's just going to become toxic trash. So that's my lifeline. That's the thing I use to communicate with grandma, to make decisions, to find out what's open, to buy you know my, the medicines and foods that I need or whatever it is. So it's like we're implicated so closely and deeply and we're so intertwined with this colossal problematic system that we're in that we that registers spiritually or psychologically emotionally and so if you can go wait that whole babylon system is all caused by those evil agents then i can feel relieved temporarily not because i'm just a righteous fighter for the good although that's part of what attracts people you're in the know and you're the one who's fighting against it but also just for a moment i can feel good again no i'm a good person Mm. i'm doing my best yeah i I have no choice but to use my phone well i have a little bit of a choice but basically i don't have any choice to use my phone and i'm still good as opposed to being in a situation where like wow i am my consumption patterns my information patterns 
the way in which I interact with media. I am already part of this very, you know, difficult moment in history, let's say. And that's really hard to deal with. So it's easier to offload uh, the complexities. Yeah. And I think it really goes back to an acceptance of our of our darkness, of our shadows, of all of those different things. When we can actually love ourselves, not because of some inherent goodness or badness, but love ourselves as a being and know that our choices, when we're making the choices in the, in the best way that we can for in service of the good of all to the best of our knowledge, when we're doing that and being curious, listening, you know, having some basic guidelines again going back to put the arms out you know feel things around listen to people and and i think there's some basic ways to navigate and i think that's i think uh, the biggest part of the message here is all right let's navigate this with some wisdom and experience let's not use the ad hominem attack and say this person who believes this is entirely bad because they believe this they're challenging you know oh they're challenging mask theory oh, okay well they're a QAnon racist you know whatever you want to say about that because they're challenging this one thing maybe they're just challenging that one thing let's look at that one thing and and observe that without our own biases and without our own desire to put that person down and categorize them as a one or a zero based upon our own belief system our own ideology and if it fits with that ideology okay they're all good if it doesn't they're all bad that's the problem that's the same as the person who gets lost in the weirdness of a psychedelic trip believing that what they're the ambassador of water for all beings it's the same when you ascribe to any ideology and try to put people in that thing oh they believe this one thing about covid well that must mean they're this 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 and this oh they don't well that means they're a sheep they're this they're this they're this they're this they're this they're communist right like we're in this crazy time of we're just not listening to people and we're trying to push them into these categories and we're almost creating the thing that we're we're looking at we're creating this conflict it is no it is partly creating the conflict and it's it's one of the most difficult things for me to deal with because you know i would say i would say some of my critics might say to a fault i have always been interested in understanding where people are coming from so when you earlier i was talking about how i you know from from the get-go was always interested in the fringe and not just like the groovy hippie fringe i was also interested in extreme religious groups or fundamentalists or, um, uh, you know, uh, right-wing movements or just intense expressions in the modern world always fascinated me. And for me, the goal was not to like, oh, they're all fine. They're all part of like the big rainbow parade. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. But I was mostly interested in trying to understand where they were coming from. So if I would meet, let's say like a fundamentalist Christian, who was not just going to um, project something onto me and, and make a stilted, superficial conversation, but because of their personal temperament, we resonated or there was some friendliness. Like my impulse is not to, it's the opposite of what you're describing, to castigate, to put in a box, mm-hmm. to start yelling against, to, to, <laughs> to give a name to. Instead, I'm like, where are you coming from? Like, <laughs> let's see how close I can get to this reality tunnel just to see what it's about. And I've always lived my life that way. And again, some people would say to a fault. So I, I can't even like begin to think in, in this contemporary mode. I'm so not designed for it. 
And, you know, I, I, it, and I, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's what, what's really scary about it is not only how self-perpetuating it is, but how, in a way, it's a little, it's a little game board where everybody acts and makes and intensifies these social conflicts while the people who are benefiting from the social conflicts are sitting in the sidelines. We mm -hmm. don't hear from them. We're playing out the role. We're following the bait when we hate that way. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're not going to come up against things that you're just like, I'm sorry. I'm just not, I just don't do racism. I can't, whatever. You want to give me something about like intelligence levels, whatever. I'm just not, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. But that's not the same thing as just, Anybody who questions any, oh, they are capital R racist and this and that, and then you're fighting and the da da da, and then who's actually getting served by this polarization? It's not yeah. us. Yeah. So, yeah. and it's not going to serve the world, you know. And ultimately, we are we are in a bit of a mess collectively as a world, right? Like we have to fight our way out of this mess. And there's a there was a great saying from uh, I actually got it from an author whose name was Starhawk. And she was saying that in her permaculture understanding, they, they have a, you know, a phrase that they use, a maxim that they use, and they say the problem is the solution. All right, so the problem is that we have all of these different people and we have all of these different technologies and all of these. All right, well, if that's the problem, it also has to be part of the solution. So that means that all of us in these consumption patterns, all of us in these beliefs, all of us have to be part of the solution to bring about, you know, to put us closer to the infinite game as james carr says the game yeah. where we're perpetuating this entire game board for life itself to continue to play out and explore and learn like we all have to come together to allow that to happen so the more we try to denigrate other people the harder it's going to be to actually come to the solution because a fraction of the world is not going to save the whole world like the whole world needs to come together to save the world like our enemies we need them like we need them to be our allies because if they remain our enemies, well, then you know we're we're gonna really have tough sledding to actually come together. Now that doesn't mean we condone all behavior, sex trafficking, you know, child sex trafficking in particular, like all of these different things. Like, fuck no, right? Let's right. put a stop fuck to these no. things. That's a hard stop, you know. And there's a hard stop to capital R racism and racism of other sorts. But let's do it in a way. Let's try to heal as many people as possible while maintaining the firm boundaries where we have to have the firm boundaries but most of what's happening is not because of the firm boundaries being violated like sure when there's those firm boundaries people who are you know acting in violence people who are directly oppressing other like yes hard boundary there but everybody else in between that's where that's where the magic needs to come from that's the solution that's going to bring about what we deeply all desire which is a world where we're free to explore and enjoy and learn and love and continue to propagate life itself on planet game board earth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really, it's really quite a challenge to, to figure out how to inculcate those connections across borders when so many of the features of our information environment are in, intensifying the kind of you know siloing of ourselves in in our in our little worlds and it's just so much easier to kind of project outward i mean one way i think about it is sort of a 
it's just talk about America, right? So America's always had a very um, intense, conservative, traditional, reactionary, and racist side. Those things are not all identical, but they they can overlap. You know, mm-hmm. uh, white Christian, um, you know, distrustful of uh, mo- the modern world, distrustful of Jews, distrustful whatever. You know, and and I'm, I'm not saying they're all race, but racism runs through it. Okay, it's always been there. And then you had this kind of more like liberal city, people from all over the place, melting pot, crazy, let's make jazz, let's do art, you know, expressionism, let's make Hollywood, you know, this kind of crazy celebration of this mixture that's sort of a fantasy, but also kind of true in some ways. And these sort of things have been America, you know, there's a lot of other elements as well. And, you know, we look at that now and it's so polarized, but on another level, like, and I don't think that, I don't know if this is true anymore, but 20 years ago, you know, those, those same sides are there. But if you're like from New York, whatever, you're going to this place, like most people are pretty friendly. Not everybody, you know, in some places you don't want to be after dark, but most people when you're actually there, when you're in the diner, when you're in the, the gas station, when you have your car breakdown, most people are decent, I believe. Mm. You know, some people don't agree. Oh, oh no, white people are this, or oh, black people are this, whatever. Yeah, no, but most people, I think, are decent in physical space, in actual physical proximity. But those same people, they go home at night and get on the internet. <laughs> They're not so friendly anymore. In fact, it's the opposite. And so part of what I think we're also wrestling with, and it's, you know, is that we're going through a kind of school of digital technology. And, you know, social media for me was kind of like high school. Like we got to the high school level where suddenly like everyone's kind of ganging together and who's in and who's out and let's chattering about them and that and da da da. And it's just, and it's metastasized into this sort of like global system of information and news. But in some sense, we're still like adolescent within it. And we, you know, we, oh, I, I can yell and now I feel good and I'm powerful and I'm telling those people what I'm thinking. Yeah. Are you going to actually do that if you're in the room with these people? No. Sometimes, you know, increasingly maybe yes. But it feels like we're just, we're like, we have to mature faster to be able to handle the extraordinary power and transformation that's inside of the technology, you know, leaving aside all the surveillance and manipulation stuff, even not even looking at that, just as like a culture using this as a medium, how are we going to do that? And, you know, I, I think it's happening. You can see it here and there. I think we're having a conversation that's part, that's addressing this kind of maturation process, but it's a, it's a bit of a race against time. And there's one thing that, that, that's come up a couple times just subtly in the conversation that you've brought up a few times that I've been thinking about more and more of. And I don't know what form it actually takes, partly because I'm just an old fart and I don't live <laughs> in you know, a millennial or sub-millennial existence. I don't use social media that way. I don't use technology quite that way. But one of my, what, I'm, what I often get in these situations is that one of the problems with social media is that it has broken down the distinction between a tight friend circle and a generalized sort of scene. And 
I believe that the, a lot of the answers to some of these problems that we have, like if we're taking the tightrope walk, how do you, how do you stay upright in the, in the midst of wild psychedelic experiences? Am I going to do that solely on my own? No. Am I going to do that solely on my own plus the internet and reading what everybody says <laughs> about everything on the internet, all the influencers, all the idiots, all the self-promoters, all the narcissists, all the kooks, all the gurus? No. How am I going to do that? I need a crew. Yeah. I need a squad. I need like a, like, you know, uh, like Scooby-Doo. Like I need that <laughs> crew, you know, five people, 10 people, 15 people, maybe 20 at the most, like the kind of crew you would go to a festival with. And so I always encourage people to, in, to inculcate those in your life and if you have them to get better at it it doesn't mean you'll get fights people come and go of course we're humans all those things happen but the more that you can build close networks that are not predominantly socially mediated though of course that's part of it but are separate from the larger stream where you develop intimacy this is like your trip buddies you know let's go to the forest and take too many mushrooms. Well, I don't want to do that alone. <laughs> nope. And I don't want to do it at a festival. I mean, it could be fun at a festival. I want to do it with a crew. Well, yeah. who are those crew? What is that crew? What is it composed of? You know, it's fun when it's not all the same people. You know, maybe you all have generally the same kind of political point of view. Maybe, but, but you, you know, one super nerdy and knows all about like chemistry and whatever, and someone's really nurturing and, and, and helpful and kind and understands incense. Someone's like really good at like religion and knows all about symbols and the occult and, and, you know, mystical Christianity and, you know, that kind of like team, um, I think is really, really important to try to generate. Now, I don't know if, and again, I'm talking from my generation, so I look ahead. Maybe that doesn't even, it's just not imaginable. It just doesn't really exist no, that way. it's the opposite. It's the opposite. What I feel and what I see and what I'm a big part of is every, every one of the thinkers that I've talked to, and you're just another one of the, the high-level thinkers, everybody is saying the same thing. It's back to that sense of tribe. It's back to that sense of these are my real people. These are my peers. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about how those people are, we almost outsource our sanity to them. Like this is self-reinforcing circle of, and it has to be peers when there's a power discrepancy. If they're right. your subordinate in some way or they're your, you know, your superior in some way, the information is not going to travel across that hierarchy. The reflections are going to be distorted by you know, the gravitational differences of power. But when they're really your equals, ass on the grass, your tribe, your crew, then you actually get the discourse that's going to be productive for everybody. And it has to go back to that. And I think there's been this massive, you know, land grab for how many followers do I have? What's my reach? How's, but there has to be an even greater focus on how tight can I get with that crew and how can I eliminate any kind of power, power dynamics or any kind of ways that, and, and you have to go back to the old, the old ways, which are initiatory practices. Like, What's it like when you, you know, I just, I had an experience where I went up and climbed a mountain with my shirt off with Wim Hof and the freezing Mount Schnischka in Poland. And there was 11 right of us and we were there and cleats were falling off and our buddy would get our cleat that we lost and we're slipping down the ice and we're pulling together for that. So it could be something like that, a challenge like that, or some difficult thing that you're doing, or it could be in the psychedelic space, or it could be in a sweat lodge or a temescal or 
these ways that you're actually stripping down all of the affronts all of the masks all of the different projections and getting down to the core essence of really knowing somebody and then figuring out like how do we do this and then again the problem being the solution social media pulling us in all these different directions the confirmation bias confirming and feeding us by who we follow the same information over and over until it seems like we've gotten the same data from 25 people well there we've cultivated that 25 people so of course we have you know so all of these different things well that problem of social media is also the solution it's a way to find people it's a way to connect with people if you're really paying attention that one comment that really made a lot of sense hey reach out to that person be like hey i really like what you had to say start that conversation maybe that's that person in your crew that that's coming that you haven't met yet so if we hold you know if we hold that kind of this is who i am as authentically as possible and then listen and then see who we meet and find that resonance and pull together with our different crew with that kind of open not this the kind of closed challenging like this is the the iron boundaries of our border like a fraternity has you're either in our fraternity or you're out and there's but really always open-ended always looking to see who we know we want to have in or out or have resonance and not having the dark side of tribalism which is this is us and we're against everybody but an openness and and finding the ways to actually drive that that to me is what everybody is pointing to as the solution and what i've seen that incredible desire because it really is it seems like that is the best way to kind of get our own minds and hearts and spirits and actions aligned and actually have that check and balance as well as the full force multiplier of all of the different people kind of in resonance absolutely and just being able to trust you know how how because part of what's going on is this collapse of trust so how do we find trust again, you know, and we can develop trust in ourselves to a certain degree. And that's part of what we're talking about. You need some trust in yourself to be able to keep some of the skeptical distance and keep this open mind and not just, you know, fa- you know, fall into your own fantasies. Um, but uh, it's really hard to trust institutions, to trust the media, to trust sure. the newspaper, to trust uh the politicians to trust the medical industry to you know on and on and on and on that's part of what's happening right now is a collapse of authority of our projected sense of 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 some degree of trust even if we're critical it's really all coming down so one of the best ways to, to develop it is to have these kinds of these forms of intimate intimate engagement with people around you and it, again it can happen partly as you say you know, online. I mean, it's, it's funny when I read about, sometimes people, I read about people going, oh, I quit social media. I couldn't take it anymore. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've always had a kind of funny social media thing where like, I never wanted to get on Facebook. I was just like, no, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, and when it went, and this, like 10, 10 years ago, I would tell people, they'd say, oh, well, where do you, are you on Facebook? And I'd say, no, I'm not on Facebook. And they would get mad at me. I wouldn't say anything. They'd just get like, what do you think? What, you think it's some kind of surveillance thing? Well, what do you think better than me? And I'm like, well, this is weird. I mean, it happened over and over again. So there was people who were really invested, but they also knew that something was a little eh, eh about it. And so I was threatening to them. But on the other hand, I've always done Twitter. I've done Twitter for 12 years now or something. And and I read people talking about Twitter. Oh, it's this horrible, toxic environment of this. And I'm like, you know, that's not my experience with Twitter at all. <laughs> totally. You know? I got whatever. I mean, I'm sure you got, you know, whatever. I have a lot of followers now because I've been doing this for a long time. But I'm pretty mellow about it. 
And, but I just cure it. I mean, I don't, I just don't go there. It's like, if things start to get like hot in like, in like a name calling way, I just kind of avoid it. You know, I get a few trolls now and again, and I usually talk to them and see if I can make a joke or reflect on the situation. <laughs> and if they're really nasty, I don't talk to them. I kind of model what, you know, I, t I sort of reflect on what they're doing for the other people on my list who are reading it. So I just, I've come up with ways. So it's just not that toxic. I, I've made a lot of friends there. People exactly like you're saying, like people I can ask questions of down the line. Hey, what about this? Can you tell me more about this? And it feeds my work. And, you know, so I, I, I'm a, a real proponent of being able to use these things in ways where you're following that kind of, um, that sense of resonance, that sense of possibility that also has a quality of challenge in it. I mean, if it's too similar, it's not as interesting. You got to have something in there that's sure. that's that's not something you totally understand and that it kind of makes it a more dynamic uh, group. But I just, I, I just hope that, and this is where I don't know because I don't, you know, I'm not actively involved with people in their 20s that much. I mean, I, I give talks and I know people you know, or I go to festivals. And so I'm around these scenes, but in terms of the nitty gritty, how it really feels, what makes these things possible and what makes them not possible. For example, I'm mm -hmm. right near a skate park. I, I skated a little bit. I wasn't very good when I was a kid. I grew up in Southern California or some of the first skate, skate parks, but I've always known a lot of skaters and I'll, I just love skateboarding. I think it's great. I'd love to watch it. But I go and I watch and I just look at how people um, interact and how social connections happen. So it's a loose zone. You know, there's little crew, little mini crews. And there's this kind of openness and this kind of like people are sort of respected for their own, doing their own process. But there's definitely this sense of a kind of tribal connection that's unspoken, doesn't need to be flag wavy. But there's something shared. And, there, and you know, there's not a lot of women, but there's women, a lot of people of color. And I was watching the other, the other week and there was this, uh, you know, young woman who's pretty attractive. I mean, just, you know, she had, she was just a very compelling person and she was, you know, she was okay. And she spilled and it was actually kind of like, Ooh, like, ah, is she okay? And I walked immediately looked at the guys around her. I kind of expected they go, Oh, Hey, are you okay? No, they just treated her like they would treat a guy, which is like, oh, not actually hurt, no broken bones, no screaming, no blood. Okay, you know, just you do your thing. And it was this respect for your individual practice and the fact that you keep failing all the time and you have to like get over failing all the time. But there was this unspoken weave of togetherness and, and sort of main, maintaining a vibe. <laughs> and it's just a very inspiring kind of model for, for community to me. And I'm always just happy to see young people skating because I'm like, they're getting some of that, whether they know it or not. There's something they're learning. And maybe other sports are like that. This is just a zone that I, that I well, follow. Well, what comes well. to mind is jujitsu comes to mind. Absolutely. You know, I see some of the tightest communities formed around, you know, jujitsu dojos and, and different Wait, because they're in there, and, and there's a there's an inherent humility that is a prerequisite for jujitsu. At some point, someone is going to have your life in their hands, literally. Like they will have you around the neck, and you have to trust that when you tap, they let go, <laughs> or you die. Right? right? Like that's the and there's a great humility that that you are all playing this game that 
you're all mutually agreeing that you're going to take care of each other even in this you know even in this martial art you know an art that ultimately was designed as a way to defend or attack but you're in this in this place where it's really creating these kind of bonds and connections so it can happen in many many different ways and of course in that same way you know it doesn't matter if it's a guy or a girl if someone's good they're good you know like a like a female purple i've watched female purple belts or black belts wreck you know white belts and blue belts that are men and even bigger that's the nature of and so it creates this kind of it, it kind of eradicates the the hierarchy based on other aspects of your identity and it's like you're all there learning and even a black belt will go up against a world champion and they'll be they'll be humbled again and you'll be humbled over and over and i think that's so finding ways to do that and skating is like that as well you know places where you're going to be daring and opening yourself up to something that has a has a consequence you know i think that's that's an important aspect of it that that kind of physical boundary of this is this is a little bit intense you know and this is going to be a little bit gnarly and if you're in there together i imagine big wave surfers you see these little clicks of like big wave surfers like it's fucking gnarly out there and if you get caught in the wrong in the wrong spot at the wrong time it can be really gnarly so they you know of course there can be some rivalry and different things just like there can be in jujitsu and different rivalries will develop but ultimately there's a respect and an admiration for the human striving of things and so it's developing in a lot of different ways and i think doubling down on that that's been a big part of what my mission is going forward i planted a flag about this idea called fit for service which is just basically a concept like all right we all want to be of service but the first thing we have to do is become fit for service so how do we do that mentally emotionally spiritually and physically and financially all the other things like how do we become more fit to serve and that is the common thread that's the only common thread that's bonding it but that simple idea of all right what are we going to do how do we get how do we get a little bit better together so that we can serve a little bit better i've just seen people flock and flourish in that environment of like okay here's the ideal and so we don't have a sport but there's many different ways that it can come about and i think so much of the solution that we're looking for and just the that sense of belonging that sense of meaning that sense like we can't have that meaning alone like we're meant we are tribal creatures it's so deeply hardwired and and we have to continue to push forward aggressively into that into that idea of coming together in community and then the communities meeting communities that old idea of the powwow you know all of these different tribes they meet at uluru and they have their you know gathering or they meet at you know this mountain here in the dakotas or they meet here and they share ideas and trade goods and and concepts and medicines and and then everybody gets a little better and then you go back to your crew or even burning man is like that you bring your crew to burning man and you experience other things in different camps and different people and you meet people and then you bring that back to your crew wherever you are that i think is uh is when i look out at the world that's the part that makes me feel like all right like we're moving in the right direction in that in that way and i think that's going to bring us that's going to bring us closer to where we're aiming for and what's coming back to me in terms of things we talked about earlier is how me- meaning making is like that too. And I think we we too often believe that meaning making is either about my my own internal insight and now so that I have I am become the leader or the the one who knows, or I turn that power over to somebody else and I'm a follower. They're, oh, mm-hmm. look, there's an influencer that I follow and they're, they're the one that I'm really interested in. And so we get in this kind of dynamic 
that's really not, it's not appropriate for where we are because in a way, there were really good things about hierarchies of knowledge and authority structures that have carried us through for a very long time. And I think some of that stuff is still valuable, but the reality is, is that it's crumbling all around us. And, but rather than embracing the new condition and being like, whoa, we got to kind of figure out how to be horizontally related in a much better way than we have been, people are falling into kind of, in some ways, worse forms of these older structures of authority, where there's some teacher or some guru or some, you know, if or like, I believe this person, I'm always doing that. And when, when what we need is not this individual based sense of meaning making, it's something that has to happen between us. And there is an element of competition, of wrestling, of engaging. It's just like what we said about the ayahuasca circle before. Here, here's a great way to concretize what I'm talking about. So these days in a neo-shamanic Western ayahuasca circle, you have your experience. And then the next morning, there's the sharing circle. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the sharing circle? Well, we all know the rules. Everybody shuts up and pays attention and listens as you go around the circle. No feedback, no critique, no, are you really sure you're the ambassador of water? Nothing. You know, that's <laughs> not, that's for, but for forbidden. And it makes sense why that's been there. You got to respect everybody's experience. You don't want to lay your trip on other people. All of that makes sense. But you can also see why that's a, a cul-de-sac, ultimately. Yeah. It's a cul-de-sac. And how we go forward to that, it's not an easy question. But it is a, it's a real problem. Because to go forward, you have to kind of risk this engagement of disagreement, of questioning, uh, but it, it's also what's delightful. I mean, what I like the most about our digital environment now is what we're doing now is that we can have a public conversation. I don't know you that well, know a little bit about you, friends of friends, blah, 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 like the vibe. Okay. I trust the vibe so I can, I can go and I, I I'm getting comfortable and we're going, we don't know where we're going to wind up. So we're actually sense making together, building a kind of temporary structure and it can happen with a you know conference or three-way, four-way, five-way conversation. But at a certain level, it's sort of hard to get be, you know beyond that. And that's just modeling a, a deeper kind of collective sense-making that we're involved in on a kind of higher level as we wrestle with these issues in public in particular. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's just a different model, that, that horizontal connectivity where there is tension and wrangling and competition and... It, it's not altogether safe. And what I would like to see, one of the things that I'd like to see, and this is, this is a little different than the, than the kind of personal tribe thing we were talking about. It's something more that, I don't know how to make it happen, but to have situations where people who are from different sides of the fence, who are, have, are more on the polarized perspective, not necessarily Trumpians versus Biden, whatever, not, you know, not like in a typical political way, but people from different kinds of angles who at least are, are committed to, you know, having a conversation and not just falling into the obvious accusations and the yeah. language projection or whatever, and then just staging those in public. It's very vulnerable. It's difficult. It's not always going to be good. And I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this for years, but have I done it? No, it's hard to do 
because you you, you got to trust people. You got to find the place. Where is that going to happen? Uh, who's going to tune into it? But and who's going to who's going to moderate it and who's yeah. going to mediate it? And and ultimately, as you're speaking, I can recall <clears throat> just to bring this again back to the ayahuasca circle. I can recall somebody that I didn't know very well who after after first ceremony put something out that in my mind was a dangerous projection of conflating reality like uh, something real with something that was a lesson for her to look at and in that in that instance i was following the rules it wasn't my it wasn't my show right you know so i just kind of let it be and it ultimately it, it exacerbated into an even more challenging situation later because we were following these rules and i think ultimately having that intelligent and having the elders this is where the tribal elders come to play and so in that ayahuasca circle having the the ability to not just adhere to these strict rules which were designed because somebody might try and put their own projections on somebody else's experience and that the bad actors might try to you know undermine the lessons that somebody actually needed to learn on their own or help them actually jump to a conclusion that they needed to arrive at on them on their own well you just got to forgive them well maybe they're just in their anger first and like this is the this is the way it is so they're good general rules but finding ways to flow not with the rigidity of those boundaries but have some some wisdom and some flexibility in that and and then to go how does this go out outside of the ayahuasca circle well i think these kind of moderated town halls where you're bringing people together and allowing them to speak and having certain rules all right you can't cut people off you know but you have a discourse where you can talk you can't shout at people you name calling is out you've you've crossed one of these boundaries okay you're no longer a part of this discourse anymore like you have to adhere to these rules but within these rules let's put you know let's put the microphones on let's allow people to discuss and allow real elders to actually manage it and i think we've gotten bad examples of that i mean you look at the first debate the presidential debate and it was like the antithesis yeah. of what we're talking about where people are actually listening to each other it was every different manipulative logical fallacy that people could use to attack the other person and it was a bad model of what this really should look like which is a moderated debate which is a beautiful fucking thing when it's actually when people are actually following the rules no it's a, it's a tough one and it gets back to some of these questions about sport that i think we were talking about in this in a weird way where it's like the wrong I, it's the wrong we're modeling the wrong sport which is like it's just like some kind of it's like uh you know, wrestling or something, you know, like, you know, WWF where it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. you're not just fighting, but you're like, you're, you're, you're playing tricks that are sort of not really against the rules, but then the whole thing is a show. Like yeah. that's what a, a typical political debate or a lot of debates on a lot of what's on the media, a lot of what it, it sort of looks like wrestling that way and <laughs> totally. i don't say that to, to disparage wrestling which i actually really admire as a, a great american art but it's there's something about that whereas what i'm thinking about is like capoeira so mm. capoeira is based on martial activity the moves and elements can be weaponized into actual fighting techniques and they definitely derive from those and yet it takes the form of a dance but the dance isn't like oh cool we're grooving along it's got <laughs> tension and um play and undercutting and sneakiness and bravura it's got a lot in it that's has the quality of a fight and yet the the rules around the flow kind of cons constrain the 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 tendency to really 
uh, towards violence. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of the model that I'm, that I'm, that I'm thinking of. And I, we're just not very, you know, good at that. It's like, we don't have models for it. And it's, we're, and social media is the worst. It's the opposite. <laughs> it's where we, we yeah. perform and we get points from our team because we, we denigrated the other side with the best snazziest language or the right accusation. And so, I mean, I'm, I mean, I get kind of despondent about these possibilities and yet whenever I talk about them, everyone's like, yeah, that's it. You know, it's like, it feels like we're waking up to some of this stuff. And at the same time, it's just, it's, there's just a lot, uh, a lot of resistance as well. Well, it, it, the good thing is it points the way like we need something to aim at and then we need the actions that, you know, follow through towards that aim. But the more people that crave that thing, someone will be there to meet that, meet that desire and meet that need. And, uh, and I believe that's coming, you know, I believe that's coming. And I think conversations like this clarify, all right, now we kind of get it. We need, we need our tribal community, our squad, our connections, those, those group of peers that can reflect back to us in honesty. And then we need to actually, you know, meet the, meet the people with different beliefs and, and allow our beliefs and their beliefs to contend in that, you know, in that arena, but follow some basic rules of respect and honoring them as sovereign beings and trying to see where they're coming from. So it's pointing the way towards the, towards where we're going. And I think the more people who crave that, the more those solutions will naturally fall into place. And, uh, and so I think that's, I think that's beautiful. I know we don't have uh, too much more time and I want to get into some weird shit that, uh, that you've uncovered because you've, you've explored this subject so much. So beyond the psychedelics, you've talked about different rituals and different occult practices. Let's just take a, let's just take a snapshot of some of the really weird and interesting and maybe even productive things that you were like, huh, there, that looks like there was something to what they were up to in this, in this very strange practice that you've uncovered. In your yeah. Research. I mean, I don't want to, um, I'm trying to think, you know, it's hard to just kind of pull one out of the, out of the air. What I think what I'm going to do is pick up something you mentioned earlier, which is you mentioned Starhawk and Starhawk mm-hmm. is a, a feminist witch. Yeah. And she, you know, pr- you know, as a young woman, uh, discovered witchcraft, uh, from people who are older, uh, uh, you know, a number of women, one woman in particular named Z Budapest. This is all taking place in California. And, you know, what these people were doing was pretty far out because basically they're not really, you know, it's not like their mother was a witch and their grandmother was a witch and their great-grandmother was a witch <laughs> like you find in, 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 in some indigenous groups, although, of course, a lot of them had intergener- intergenerational breaks in the 20th century. So there aren't a lot of, like, really continuous sort of magical practices that go back, you know, maybe Tibetan Buddhism is in a weird way an example because they, they actually have a lot of magic. Well, and, a, and a lot of these magical practices that did have lineages were, were broken. Right. That's, you that's know, so, were... so, but that in a way is part of the weirdness is that they need to be rebuilt yeah. and sometimes rebuilt almost uh, from whole cloth, meaning it's, it's, it, you're inventing it, but you're inventing a tradition with a capital T. And a lot of the paganism or, or witchcraft from the 1960s and 1970s, going back to the 50s and the 40s, but, you know, just kind of concentrating on this zone, you know, had that character where it's like on the one hand, people desperately wanted to connect with a, a, a tradition with a capital T that goes way back, back before Christianity, 
back to the roots of humanity, back to, to when we were living close with the earth or close with the cycles of the seasons. And we were intimately related with animal spirits or nature spirits or plant spirits where the, the world was animated with uh, agents. It wasn't just human beings in a dead world. It was like everything had something to say and to enter into that world again. So people did all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, sometimes with psychedelics, but often with, uh, with eroticism, with mm -hmm. intense trance practices, with breathing techniques, with staying up late, with a lot of imagination, you know, using that kind of reality bending quality of the imagination to build sort of uh, a different ritual systems. And, you know, from the outside, it looked really, you know, kind of peculiar people gathering together and like lighting things and building cones of energy and crystals and uh, smell sticks and chants and all this kind of stuff. Is it like, is this theater? Is it, you know, what is it? You don't even really know what it is. And that's part of what makes it powerful is that you don't know what it is. And there's a, here's an interesting story. So one of the, one of these groups different from the Starhawk, but another California group, this is how they got started. This is like the late 60s. They're in a theater class in, in San Francisco. This group is called the New, New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> so they're in a theater group, and their, their assignment is to make a ritual. So they're like, okay, we'll make a ritual. And they're, you know, they're kind of hippie types, or you know, maybe they've had some, done some psychedelics. You know, it's, that, it's the late 60s. And so they said, okay, let's do it. And they like did their research and they got poems from here and goddess worship stuff from there and looked at some the theatrical ideas of how rituals work and they built a ritual and they really did it and it worked. <laughs> well, what worked? It. What was it? I don't know. Neither did they, but they kept doing it. And by iterating this process, they enter into a magical world, a magical life, a life where, where magic is real what, without losing their kind of educated, skeptical, upper middle class, whatever, you know, whatever, that kind of zone, whatever kind of people mm -hmm. they were. And this is happening in all sorts of zones, all sorts of different layers in, you know, African-American communities and Chicano communities. There's all sorts of people sort of going, wait, without actually believing anything, we can start to practice in a different way do theater in a different way, and things happen. And, you know, in a way, it raises some of the same questions we're asking. Like, you don't want to believe the story too much, or you start to go kooky or become a guru. You know, you start to, like, believe your hype too much. But if you keep that little grain of irony uh, in the picture, you can, you can have pretty, pretty far-out experiences. You know, synchronicities, senses of presence, of agencies, uh, patterns. Suddenly, the whole history of magic opens up as a very rich lore. The body opens up. Suddenly, there's, it's almost as if the body is animated with its own spirits. And in some ways, what's most interesting to me is that you have built a kind of imaginary interface with particularly the natural world. So again, instead of it just being a dead or just purely genetically driven, unspirited environment, it's actually alive with agency and activity and intelligence, but through your ritual action and through your imagination and your knowledge of mythology, your knowledge of symbols, your ability to manifest symbols in your own life, 
you're actually like kind of building a way to interact with the larger world on a fundamentally different level that itself, once again, takes on a life of its own and starts being about more than you and your imagination or even you and your crew. Suddenly it starts being about a wider world that's kind of waking up in a different way than we're used to. And that kind of, you could call it animism, I think is a very important thing for people to develop now. Again, not in like a superstitious way or a I'm putting on my hat way, like, oh, now I believe that everything is alive. No, it's about your own experience, your yeah. um, practice with the world. That uh, it seems like, again, following that test of is this productive? Is this yielding a greater sense of wholeness, a greater sense of uh, connection and love and, and vibrancy in your life, whatever your highest ideals are, is it fostering that? And at the same time, those people surely had lots of accusations lobbed at them. Oh, look at that cult. Look at that cult. And they put the label on them, slap that sticker on them, cult. And then everything that goes along with cult is then associated with them. But really what people are talking about in that, they're talking about the negative aspects of what that is, which is where you're trapped in this, you're being oppressed, you're being manipulated, you're being used, you're being in some way, you know, someone's either trying to have sex with you or trying to steal your money and trying to prevent you from, you know, that typically goes that way. And yeah. there's a hierarchy, a defined hierarchy, or you're actually doing bad on into the world. But nonetheless, people are afraid of that because those things get highly publicized and those things get kind of put out there. And so anytime a group comes together around a ritual or some practice, they're going to be called all of these different things. But I think that's loosening. Like the fabric of that is loosening to some degree. And I think the message is like, feel free to explore. Just keep these guidelines in place and keep your ideals in place. Like what do you want to bring about because of this? You know, are you bringing about more of your higher ideals or less of your higher ideals? Are you manipulating people for your own gain? And be skeptical of that. You know, if you're putting this on, what are your real reasons? Do you want people to follow you? Do you want people to love you? Do you want do you want yeah. to feel like you're you're worthy of something greater than what you normally feel? Be skeptical of yourself and the whole thing. But nonetheless, have the freedom to explore. Dive in and dive out and then have your your warning signs. Okay. Now when I want to step back and I don't want to show up on the, you know, this particular equinox is are people then now attacking me and is this now becoming this sense of force and sense of oppression and sense of the uh the kind of ways that power has acted in 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 bad accord you know with with people throughout history so it's it's cool now that i think and i think it, again as you said it started it's actually been going on you know right. throughout all time but it feels like it's as the psychedelic renaissance that we're in now is happening in a different way with different scientific elements being exposed, different things, still with some different ways that we have to look at it, some cautionary tales and some ways we have to analyze it. It feels like magical practices are also being, you know, ha going through a revivic revivification and, and they're coming back alive. And I think that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's yeah. a beautiful thing where people can really explore that, just keeping in mind these are the, these are the guidelines and these are the ways to navigate. Yeah, and uh, to me, it's a lot about about the media environment and just hoping that that message c comes there because one of the challenges is just that the access to that to the kind of ideas that we're talking about um, about self reflection and your higher ideals, like those those kind of meta questions that you should be asking as you're going into these experiences, it's like 
is the is is the information environment supporting this kind of transmission, or is it actually supporting um, uh, a more of a closed loop or a more of a superficial engagement? And there's certainly a lot of arguments to be made for the for the latter scenario. And so it's it's like how you know how do we get the message out when the message isn't like do X? It's like you know pick up on these ways of being that are in, in some ways more subtle or multi-leveled. And that's a complicated message. It's not, you know, use the tarot and it's going to give you, you know, tell you how to get your next job or something <laughs> it's like simple or it's the meta, yeah. it's the meta message. It's yeah. the meta questions. And, and actually one of the most intelligent people that I've ever had a conversation with is uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I, he, I've, I've been on panels with him. Yeah, he's he seems to be dedicating, and we're going to have a podcast and talk about it. But he's dedicating a big allocation of his own intellectual resources to this kind of meta information project, which sounds very much in alignment with this, where he's open sourcing all of these ways not to tell you what to think, but illuminate how you are thinking. You know, and so he's putting his efforts exactly in the in the same, not exactly, but very much in the same vein of what we're talking about, because ultimately. It, what needs to be transmitted is not the sp the specifics the dogmas the things that people do this and this is what you must subscribe to and this is what you have to wear but the questions about all right how do i think about this how do i explore what should i keep in mind that's where it's really interesting and that message cannot be amplified loud enough because it's going to serve everybody universally yeah i mean i think we're again we're in that sort of ra race to wake up period and that's the most interesting game is the one it's not about trying to influence large groups of populations to do what you think they should do in order to solve the problem that's a useful mode of action people are going to do that anyway but i think in the spaces we're talking about and in the kind of you know the mandala of our conversation and the kinds of connections we have i think the game is different i think it is about I don't want to say individually waking up because it, it's too much on the individual. It's that we are involved in a collective sense-making practice that requires everybody playing the game to go through their own training regimen, to go through their own states and stages to get to a place where we can all play together on a you know more or less equal field. Like obviously there's some things, you know, about existential risk that I, you know. Daniel Schmachtenberger knows a lot more than I do. So if we're in a conversation, I'm not going to be like, well, I, my ideas are just as important as Daniel's. No, I'm going to recognize that, you know, now I go down a little bit and he goes, well, but right, when we start talking sure. about something else, you know, I'm like, well, are you going to give me the ball or, you know, and so yeah, sure. that, that's the kind of zone where, where we're in. And it's, it's a, it's like a rap, rapid grow up kind of situation. And, and that part of it actually makes me really enthusiastic. And I, I'll, this may sound too, not too, um, depressing and pessimistic but it may be the case that we're at, you know at a kind of end it may be the case hopefully not that the complexities in modern civilization are so much that they're just there's going to be some kind of variety of collapses we're we're in some hard let's call it hard transition well, what's the best way to go into something like that? There's not that much that we can do about it individually at this particular point. If that's in the cards, it's like, you know, there's so much huge, you know, thousands of years of history have brought us to this moment. We should be agents. We should try to, you know, improve things. We should try to right the ship. But it might not happen. And if it doesn't happen, 
what's the best way to be? The best way to be is to try to wake up together and recognize and appreciate this beautiful world that in some ways might be vanishing or transforming dramatically in this simultaneously a call towards me as a single existential little point of light in relation in a collective process of just trying to understand what's going on in a way that might enable us to do something really unpredictable, marvelous, and uh, transformative. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And it's, it's instead of worrying about whether we win the fight, it's worrying about how we fight. And it's that, I think it's one of the reasons why the story of the 300 at Thermopylae is so captivating. It's that they knew they were going to die. Like they knew that the end was actually decided for them, but it was how were they going to, how long could they hold? What statement could they make in their, in their actions that would not affect them? It would affect, you know, future generations to come and is still affecting us now. Like they, they changed the fabric of our, of our mindscape, you know, mm -hmm. by their actions. And so whether or not we do have a collapse or not, how are we going to live on the way to that? How are each of our individual stories going to play out? And if we all end up, you know, all going out on our shields instead of with them, so be it. At least we went out knowing that we tried to bring as many people together, push as much love into the world as possible. And, and if it is the end, fuck it. You know, like we're not responsible for that. We're just responsible for how we act, you know, within the bounds of this great mystery that's unfolding. Yeah. And there's a freedom in that and in, in accepting that possibility. And, and I really... I, I also, I, I kind of think that's a big part of this op opening up. And I think it's partly why you find a lot of the sense making happening around questions of, of existential threats. It's not just because the existential threats are real and we have to wrestle with them. It's that by actually looking at the existential threats and understanding them and really seeing how wicked the wicked problems are that we're involved in is that it's also an invitation to give up on some more naive fantasies about eternal life or everything's going to be groovy or things that we might not think intellectually, but we hold personally. Psychedelics can also very, very much support this kind of confrontation with death mm -hmm. and the void and not being able, not being in control and being part of this huge wave of history that's darker and weirder and more wicked than you thought it was. Those are aspects of experiences. And, 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 but where does it leave us? It can leave us in a place of greater strength and greater, greater freedom. You know, it's, it's that, you know, the, uh, you're already dead martial arts lesson. You know, it's like, if you actually op operate that way, not in a nihilistic, violent manner, but in a loving manner where you're already dead, in a way you're really free. Uh, and, and I think that, that since the existential threats are all around us, we might as well use them to transform in a way to face aspects of our fear that we can face, or at least know what it's like to, to play with that fear, and then see what kind of room for freedom and for new values comes in that breaks us out of the old games of trying to prevent uh, our own, you know, try to avoid our own mortality through our own personality projects. That ain't gonna work in the face of existential threat. We gotta get a different game going so it can yeah. actually be a kind of freedom no doubt and i love the story you know tolkien's story the fellowship of the ring the rise of the two towers this imminent darkness that's approaching and encroaching upon the world 
breaking down all of the tribal barriers that once had you know you talk about different races well these were different species dwarves and elves and humans and wizards and hobbits and everybody was like well because of this existential threat we're all going to come together again form a squad form a tribe form a fellowship get rid of all of these different petty ideas and say we're in this together we're going to do our best we're going to try to put the ring back into the back to the creator and disperse it you know from whence it came and see what we can do here you know and that story is a beautiful story even without the happy ending because right. that's what that's the space that we're in we're in the space now where it's time to reach out to everybody form our squad and and see what we can do and do it with a fucking smile right on <laughs> this has been so fun man it's been a it's been a real pleasure to drop in with you and uh, and chat about all this stuff yeah yeah i love it i really thanks for for, for inviting me it, it's uh it's a it's a great space yeah no doubt um where can people go to learn more about you follow some of your work obviously we mentioned your book high weirdness but you got a bunch of other stuff yeah right now um i've joined the substack uh, universe and so i'm writing a substack called burning shore and that's also a good way to keep up with all the stuff i do i do a lot of talks and public events and um i teach a, a monthly group called the uh, psychedelic sangha um mm. and that's a sort of buddhist meditation practice group for people who are you know interested or influenced by their psychedelic experience as well and the, there's information about that on, on on the burning shore it's called the san francisco psychedelic sangha and then i also have an older archive that has like a you know 10 years of my podcast which i you know ended not too long ago called expanding mind and people are still raging through the archive because it's got a lot of a lot of this stuff in it you know it's 10 years of it plus tons of articles and speaking things most of my 30 plus years of work are on are on that website and it's called technosis t-e-c-h-g-n-o-s-i-s.com and that's my first book that came out in the late 90s and is still in print and people still like it so uh, that's the good place to find me burning shore and technosis and psychedelic sangha beautiful well thank you brother glad to be in touch and uh definitely looking forward to more in the future yeah yeah i hope to hope we meet in the flesh sometime and no doubt we'll make it happen all righty all right take care good day. thanks for tuning in everybody thanks for tuning into the podcast with eric davis i love you guys and i'll see you next week